I have Lars Schernikau here. Greetings, Tom. Pleasure to be with you and good to be in touch. I'm German. I'm an energy economist. Um, I live primarily in Europe and Asia, um, but I am, my day job is commodity trading. And um, I've been working in the energy and commodity business for about uh, 20 years now. I would like to give you a bit of an introduction of, of the things that, that I spend a lot of my time on. And I think would be quite valuable, hopefully, for you and also some of the listeners. I want to give you a short overview of, of the business I am in, which is energy and commodities. And uh, I've been spending probably about the last six, seven years, a significant portion of my private time understanding how energy and electricity specifically works and the uh, uh, commodity demand behind the current energy transition. So um, I will call this, this, this presentation The Unpopular Truth About Electricity and the Future of Energy was actually the title also of, of my book, which we later talk about, uh, Tom, and which covers a lot of the concepts I, I present today. And, um, and then, yeah, the energy and material input to produce energy. As we know, you can actually produce energy. You can only generate electricity or you can generate energy by taking energy from somewhere else and make it available to you, the public, in a usable form. The usual disclaimer, whatever I say is my own is my own opinion, not that of any organization I'm, I'm associated with. Let me start with, uh, with a very important slide to put things into perspective. This is the, uh, the number of people in energy poverty worldwide, actually the people without access to any electricity worldwide. You can see that just 10 years ago, we had 1.3 billion people who didn't have access to any electricity. And that number actually in the past 40 years has been continuously reducing from 3 billion, was a very large number, down, down, down to, to 700 something million in the 2020, just pre-COVID. And first time in modern history, the number of people without electricity has increased in the past two years. And that, of course, was driven partially by COVID. So it's actually, think about it. Why do people not have access to electricity? There's two reasons. Either they're too poor or energy is too expensive, right? So, and what happened in, 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 the past, in the past years with COVID is that actually poverty rose. The people didn't have jobs, had to stay at home, didn't have the money. On top, in addition, the, the price of energy in general grew. So what does it mean when the people now don't have access to electricity? Well, think about it. People who don't have access to electricity, they don't have access to hospitals. They don't have access to schooling, to light. Um, to, to health you know, measures, that actually means they die earlier. So people who have access to electricity live longer, and who, people who don't live shorter. And those 20 million people that rose you know, that in the past two years, I mean, that's 20 million people who are literally now exposed to potentially shorter lives, just to put things into perspective. So about, about myself, I mentioned before, I've been 20 years in this business now of, of commodities primarily, uh, the company um, that 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 our family uh, controls called HMS Bergbau AG is a German company, a listed company, and we handle worldwide products, including coal products, um, um, yeah, in Asia, Africa, and the U.S. I've written a couple of books. You can check check me out, check up uh, on the internet on me, and you'll find a few things. Um, some of my my scientific papers I've written I keep on Elsevier's SSRN online as well. You just search for SSRN my name, and you'll see some of those scientific papers we've written on wind and on solar and on electricity and on coal versus gas. Um, so that's all things I do you know, in my private time. Now, thinking about energy again, let's take a step back. Um, what are humanity's key challenges today? And uh, I think we're all clear that, that 
food and water, the access to to clean edible food and and, and clean water is is a key challenge uh, in today's society with eight billion people. Of course, there's a problem that comes with it because making that food and that water available to us does come with pollution towards specifically the water and the soil, right? Now, the second key um, challenge is probably energy. I mean, you think about energy as, 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 as the, at the core of everything we do. And, um, and energy, again, has a cost to you know, uh, the environment. And that primarily is pollution of air, but not only, of course. And then the third one I would say is probably health. And I, I was going to say body, bodily, mental, and spiritual health. If we were all spiritually healthy, there wouldn't be any any war, right? So you know, think about that 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 health is not only you know how we feel, but it's really also how we interact as humans amongst each other. And um, the next thing, the new problem we're probably facing is the problem of 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 waste, the human waste that we generate. Of course, it all comes from the above things we mentioned mentioned above. But the the waste we generate, eight billion people in all our industrial well, personal activity is quite substantial. So that's another challenge. So we look at these four things. Um, um, they're actually all about energy, right? In the end, it only takes energy to have access to clean water. It takes primarily energy, you know, to plant what I mean to plant to live and to grow things and to and to harvest them and to upgrade them. It takes a lot of energy to to provide the health system we have in our life, and of course, it takes primarily almost only energy, you know, to 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 recycle properly um, whatever we put on the ground. So, so energy in the end can give us this food, water, and the waste treatment and actually cool or heat our planet, how we you know to keep healthy and well. So energy is the core of everything. That's also my personal interest in this subject of energy. And, and I hope you can understand where that passion comes from. So um, I'll say a few things. So first, give a short introduction. I always love The Economist, you know, has this, this, this cover um, um, last year called Power Play, the New Age of Energy and Security. And yes, um, the, the discussion about energy has really reached new levels um, um, in society, especially in the Western world. And um, taking again a step back, thinking about what energy actually does. Well, energy is supposed to give us secure supply of energy, and it's supposed to make that secure and reliable supply on the right affordable, right to us, right to to make it to make it affordable, yeah. And, and of course, we have to do all this with the least environmental impact. So we have to protect our environment for, for long-term reasons. And the environment, of course, is a complex issue. It's, there's the climate issue, there's the pollution, there's plant and animal life, there is the land and space use, and of course, there's the material input. How many materials do we need to provide the energy to ourselves? And then there's the energy input, which actually, how much energy do we need to provide the energy to ourselves? Because even to generate electricity, takes energy first, right? So I think this is something, these are the, the, this famous triangle of objectives of energy policy. Now, looking at energy historically, and now we're talking here the past 200 years, you can see how green we were. We only burned biomass and woods in Europe and the US, right? I mean, we were very, very green. We were living only of biomass primarily, and literally Europe, my own continent where I grew up, there was not many forests left. I mean, we had cut all those trees to keep us warm, right? To, and also to construct whatever materials we have, our houses and all those things. Then the Industrial Revolution came. We found coal. Luckily, we found oil and gas and nuclear. This yellow here came up. Hydro became a significant portion of our global primary energy. This is just primary energy here. And then wind and solar and other renewables started to creep up in the past decades. Now, what's interesting is that actually last year, 
80% of all our energy worldwide came from fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas. 80% worldwide on average. Now, Europe, after a trillion dollar of investment, managed to keep it down, but down to 70%. So Europe today is 70% of primary energy coming from coal, oil, and gas. Wind and solar managed to actually already reach 4% of primary energy. It's quite significant. Uh, it's little compared to what we spent on it, but it's still a significant portion, 4% of global primary energy. The question now is, what happens in the future? And uh, what will happen is, well, uh, actually, okay, I, I point out being being a little coal man, I always say, okay, global coal share, by the way, is one third of electricity, 36% actually, and to be correct, and 25% of primary energy is just comes from coal. Now, what happens in the future is that we will need more energy. Why do we need more energy? People talk about energy, energy conservation and reduction of energy, energy demand, all things. Yes, in the West, we are now at a level where we can start talking, you know, to have more efficient lights bulbs and more efficient cars and, and all those things. But there is a, a, a sort of kind of law, you know, it's not really a law, but it, that Jevons paradox, which says every time you reduce your consumption of energy, you find new things that actually increases your consumption again talking the cloud, right? Talking flying to the moon, right? Having now three cars instead of one car, having now three phones instead of one phone. I mean, you just think about the electrification we're doing, we will actually increase our total energy demand continuously, even in the Western world. So where we start saving um, um, energy, we will start adding new uses of energy. So I would argue that in the West will more or less stay stable. Now, what happens in the developing nation? Well, the developing nation is very simple. The energy per capita increase will, on average, increase by 20% purely because of nascent nations such as Bangladesh, Pakistan, Thailand, Nigeria. All these countries, they're going to just try to come closer to our own per capita consumption. And that, on average, will give us a 20% per capita energy increase in the next 27 years. At the same time, population is going to grow 25% from 8 billion to 10 billion in the next 27 years. So that gives you the 50%. Make it 40%, make it 35%, doesn't matter. There will be a significant demand increase going forward. Now, looking at that 170,000 terawatt hours of primary energy you just saw, this is the 80% here, which is oil, coal, and gas. Um, nuclear, there's an R missing, but it will come up soon. There it is. So <laughs> that, that um, primary energy is used roughly 40% to generate electricity. And then there's 20% each for transportation, heating, building, and industrial purposes. So just keep in mind that energy is not only electricity, energy is many, many more things. But electricity is the biggest, biggest uh, use, which is 40%. Now, the electricity that we generate worldwide is 60% coal and gas, 10% nuclear, a bit, of, a bit of petroleum is going down, and then there's a lot of other, including hydro. Now, what's interesting is that that 17% is 29,000 terawatt hour actually is only 17% of the primary energy, but often people mistake that 17% is the correct percentage, but actually it's 40% before losses that we spend on like electricity generation. And then we lose during the process, during the generation of electricity, we use some useful energy. By the way, that's emitted in the form of heat to our biosphere that lost, had that loss. Um, so it becomes 29,000 terawatt hours. Again, 4% wind and solar of primary energy. And of electricity, it's already roughly 10% globally coming from wind and solar. Now, what's interesting is when you look at the net zero pathways that we are confronted with on, on a daily basis worldwide, and one famous one is the IEA net zero pathway from 2021, 
you can start to see a, a picture like this where the IEA projects in order to reach net zero, we need to reduce our primary energy by 10% in the next seven years. And that will then remain the same. So remember I just said about, you know, poorer people catching up with us as well as population increase. I do not know how they come to this conclusion, but I think anyone thinking straight about energy demand will tell you that is not realistic in any way. It's not plausible, it's not realistic. Um, on top of that, they have an assumption that by 2050, wind and solar will make a 40% share in primary energy worldwide on average. Just to give you a perspective, Germany reached 5% of wind and solar share in primary energy after 20 years of working on the Energiewende um, and spending about $1 trillion in, in, in Germany. So again, it gives you a sense about how unrealistic some of these, these projections are when people talk about net zero, because the IEA basically said, this is what would have to happen to reach what we call net zero. So this is what they project, look, this is what we have to do. And then they try to tweak it. Okay, this is how we're going to do it. But is it plausible? Okay, I leave it up to you to judge. What's interesting as well is that the world of, of, of you know, energy and raw materials is a bit bigger than we think. And I didn't know this myself, but actually we're now, this is to, until 2017, we're now almost at 100 billion tons of raw materials, minerals that we extract every year from our world, 100 billion tons every single year. And that's up from 30 billion tons 50 years ago. Now, um, population increase at this time, at the same time as the energy per capita increase, also the raw material use in tons per capita increase. So not only are we increasing our energy demand, we're also increasing our raw materials we require per capita from the world. And of course, has to be our goal to reduce it as much as possible or to limit that growth as much as possible, because that is also environmental protection. It's not only you know CO2 emissions, there's also a few other things we have to consider about environmental protection. And we'll get to that a little bit later. And so what's interesting is that you, know, you have oil, coal, and gas make about 15 billion tons. It includes 8 billion tons of coal. So these 15 billion tons of energy raw materials, which provide us with 80% of our energy, those are required to extract and process all the other 85 billion tons, right? So, so of these 100 billion tons, you take 15 billion tons just extracting energy raw materials. You know, you make them somehow into usable energy, forms of energy, and that energy is used to extract that other 85 billion tons, which includes the food, the biomass, right? All those things, the non-metallic minerals, the, the limestone for cement, uh, metallic minerals, I mean, the lithium and all those things, the steel and all those things. So it's just to put things into perspective, large scale, what we are doing every day, okay? And how important that energy is and how small relatively that energy is compared to everything else we're doing yeah, in terms of the raw material. So now look at the investments. This is now the global, um, um, first of all, again, the, the electricity, back to electricity. No, sorry, I jumped back and forth in primary energy, electricity, I apologize. This is electricity. And this is, again, remember, 36 plus 23 is roughly 60% of electricity comes from coal and gas. This is the 8%. This is 2019. Now it's actually 10% already. It grew. Um, it's coming from wind and solar. There's some nuclear 10%. Then there's hydro, biomass, all those things. When you now put next to it the global investment in power generation, you see that actually wind and solar gets 45% of the investment but contributes only about 10% of our electricity. 
coal and gas receive about a little bit half than the investment, contributes about 6% of, of, our, of our electricity, and coal alone, providing almost 40% of electricity, gets only 20% of the investment. So you start to see some of the investment issues, we'll talk about it a bit later, but the investment is not matching our current energy supply. Of course, the argument is we'll invest into the future, whatever is clean, so we put more money in there and less money into what's not clean. But when you start to not invest enough in your reliable energy supply, you start to have problems, which you started seeing in the past two years, and maybe, Tom, we can talk about this later as well. Um, now, let me take my own country as a beautiful example, my own country, Germany. And um, so this is 20 years of installed net power generation capacity in Germany. In Germany, these 20 years, that was the 20 years of the German energy transition from you know, fossil fuels to renewables. So those 20 years, Germany invested almost 1 trillion euros. And at the beginning, Germany had about 115 gigawatt of installed capacity, of which 75 gigawatt, 65% was fossil fuel. Then there was nuclear, uh, 20%. And then there was wind and solar already back then, about 10%. What happened in the past 20 years is that um, the fossil fuel capacity or the reliable capacity, what I call a nuclear, is down to down whatever, 10%, 20%, down to about 80 gigawatt, because nuclear is now gone, by the way, completely. We just heard that a couple of weeks ago, Germany closed the last nuclear plants. But at the same time, wind and solar capacity, I mean, skyrocketed, right? So this wind and solar went up by, it's now actually 140 gigawatt. So more than what we previously had was added in wind and solar. Now, interesting is that at the same time, Germany managed to now have the highest price for power worldwide. In fact, the prices for power are three times higher than US and about six and a half times higher than China. So with this energy transition came an extremely significant cost or price increase, which exactly is caused by the cost increase. And um, we'll talk about cost of renewables a little bit later. But um, when you look at the, um, at, the, at the power generation, so Germany's power consumption or generation has been more or less stable in those past 20 years. So Germany did not consume more, but also not less. Remember, I talked about the Jevons paradox. Despite those efficiency increases, in fact, it's more or less the same for the past 20 years. You can show that in history in many, many countries. So Germany's power consumption has stayed the same. So Germany managed with this new installed capacity, they managed to have roughly 30% share of wind and solar. So they doubled their installed capacity. And that doubling of installed capacity managed to replace, really replace fossil fuels about 30%. So um, you double your installed capacity, which means added cost, because you still have that, that system here. I mean, otherwise, the system wouldn't run. So you still need that dispatchable capacity. On top, you have your intermittent capacity. And with that, you manage in Germany roughly a 30% replacement of your fossil fuels, primarily, and nuclear. And um, we talked previously about primary energy. Primary energy share went to 5%. Wind and solar managed 5%. It seems there's a primary energy drop here. That's actually an interesting one, a bit more complex, it has to do with how they count. They assume wind and solar is 100% efficient, which is actually wrong. And that is why as the share of wind and solar increases, uh, your primary energy consumption decreases. So I would say this 5% is probably a little bit too low. Actually, it's probably a bit bigger. But uh, this number is also not quite correct or not comparable to this number. Either way, you get a sense that with this investment, this huge doubling of capacity, what actually difference they made in terms of primary energy consumption. Um, 
the world, by the way, has eight terawatt or 8,000 gigawatt of installed capacity, roughly of which 2,000 gigawatt is coal capacity. So Germany has 200 something versus 8,000 in the world worldwide. What's interesting is that the peak power demand in Germany is about 80 gigawatt. And you see that, okay, if you start, if you add here the, uh, the, the hydro and biomass at the bottom, you see that the, the installed capacity is, is power capacity now is reaching, getting damn close to the peak power demand. So in the past, Germany had a 20% um, reserve margin. So where you had enough dispatchable power capacity in a system, about 20% of your peak power. Now we have reduced that where we're getting damn close to that peak power demand. And that is why Germany is in the trouble it is in. That is why Germany had trouble last winter where suddenly you know someone turns a little bit of gas off and the whole world falls apart. So, so the reason is when, 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 you're, like, when your energy system, and what always counts is the reliable dispatchable power capacity versus your peak power demand. That's all that counts. Wind and solar counts nothing at night and in the winter when it's not, then there's no wind. Think about it, right? So it doesn't matter how much you put up here. In the winter, at night, no, 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 uh, uh, no wind. Um, you cannot rely on it. That means you can only compare your dispatchable with the with the peak power. We'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But you get a sense of of that is a reason why Germany and not only Germany but also Europe in general has an issue. And by the way, McKinsey recently did say that if Germany does not construct thirty gigawatt, thirty gigawatt of thermal gas capacity in the next seven or eight years, we will have blackouts. So that is already, that's McKinsey said that last, last, last month, just very recently. So they would have to put, I mean, you see how much 30 gigawatt is compared to this. It's a big number. It has to be because of a very, very short period of time. Being German, knowing that the Berlin airport took 25 years to build, I can tell you it's not going to happen. Okay. So, um, all right, let's take a step further. Now, this is Germany's industrial power prices. You see how, you know, we used to be at the beginning, we used to be reasonably um, um, affordable and, and, and competitive. And industrial power prices went up like crazy. They've been reducing, reducing a little bit further in 2023. But this compares to China with uh, 8 US dollars cent, actually consumer price, not even industrial price. So you can see when industries, so heavy industries, energy intensive industries, they have no choice but to go away, to move out. Right? Nobody can afford that, that those high prices for a long period of time. For some time you can manage, but given the energy insecurity um, and the uh, and 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 the continuous cost increases resulting in price increases for power and energy in general means that that heavy industry um, are very reluctant to invest in a country like Germany for the long term. So um, looking at wind and power now worldwide, um, this is from BCG by the way, um, the company I used to work for for six years. So in 2019 we had 1.4 terawatt of installed wind and solar. In 2000, March last year, we reached one terawatt of installed solar. ECG says towards a you know, renewable net zero system, we would have to put 8,600 terawatt of installed wind and solar by 2030. That is what they're projecting in order to reach those net zero goals. What's interesting is that the current world in total, if you remember, has currently eight terawatt. So they are suggesting to double the installed existing global capacity with wind and solar. Exactly what Germany has done in 20 years, the world on average will do in the next seven or eight years. Okay. Um, so again, some questions to think about. And then they argue that 10 years later, please put another double on top. And then another 10 years later again. So 
the current net zero pathways have assumptions that we would install so much wind and solar that basically would quadruple our existing in installed infrastructure of, of power generation capacity. But the problem is that the assumptions made behind even those models are too optimistic and we would need much, much more. Just again, to give you a sense about some of the unrealistic, unplausible future we're going towards. Um, by the way, that solar would probably cover well, uh, 250,000 square meter, square kilometers, that's three quarters of Germany would basically be covered in, in, in solar. But of course, it's going to be much, much more, would be much, much more because the capacity factor assumptions, all those things, they would be in the desert, wherever. Um, and this assumes a Spanish solar natural capacity factor. So there's a difference in the capacity factor, how much useful sunshine you get every year on average. In Germany, it's 11%. In California, it's 25%. So there's a big difference depending on how much sun you get, but it will hardly ever get above 25% which has to do with the night and has to do with during the day. In the beginning of the day, the sun is not high enough. And then there's still some days which are cloudy, you know, happens even in California. Um, and there's rain and all those things. So, um, Tom, I want to talk a little bit about the concept of ERI, if you allow me, um, which is sort of an interesting but quite important topic when we talk about energy. Now, we're all familiar with, um, with a return of investment on monetary terms. So you put $1 in, get $2 out, you know, great. You know, two to one EROI, uh, sorry, ROI, return of investment, you've made a lot of money. The same concept exists in energy. So again, remember I said before, in order for you to have access to usable energy in the form of electricity or heat or anything else, you need to first disperse energy to make that energy, right? And that's what we call EROI, energy return of investment. And um, that actually measures the net energy efficiency in the, I call, production of energy. There's no production, right? So when you think about, people talk about efficiency, always think efficiency in consumption of energy, right? So how efficient is my car? How efficient is my lamp? How efficient is my power plant? But very few people think about the efficiency of the generation of the energy. And that's even more important. You'll see why. So going now, I love about history, going 700 years into history, this is an example for the UK, so you can see this is the percentage of GDP allocated to energy expenditure. So literally, historically, we as humans used two-thirds, 70% of our time, of our GDP, of everything we have to survive, to collect the food, to keep us warm, to feed the animals. So we've spent primarily our time on surviving in the form of feeding us and, and keeping us warm. Now, with the Industrial Revolution and, and, the, and, the, and, and the discovery of coal at, at, at large level, we were able to suddenly, look, reduce the time spent to 10%, right? So, so today's GDP is 7, 8, now probably even a bit more, but somewhere between 5 to 10, 12% of our GDP is actually expended on collecting the energy we need to keep us warm and to keep us fit. So that is a, a, um, one of those, those important things that happened in the Industrial Revolution. And this 90% of the time, we can now actually start playing soccer and watch movies, you know, and play with our kids, all those things that you couldn't do before. I mean, that's literally what's happening, okay? So uh, you understand the concept. Now, interesting is that the most efficient way of generating electricity in this case is nuclear. Like nuclear is an extremely efficient way of um, uh, generating electricity. And right now, I'm only talking about EOI. I'm not talking about money, nothing else, just EOI. Of course, nuclear is expensive. I know that. 
Now, the, the second most efficient is probably hydro. So hydro, you know, you build hydro dams, you know, you have to expend energy to build those dams and to, you know, to, to put all the things in place. And then the third is probably coal and gas, so thermal, right? Thermal is, has been, with industrial revolution came the whole, you know, the, the steam engine and, and, and the optimization of that. That's a very efficient way of producing or regenerate electricity. Interesting is then why are we not using more nuclear and and and, and only so and so much coal and gas sixty percent well because because nuclear is very expensive um, hydro is also a bit expensive depends on but the cheapest actually is thermal power generation and coal is even cheapest right gas is a bit more expensive than coal but on average it's both very cheap what's interesting is that the the so called green ways of generating electricity are rather energy inefficient. So biomass, solar and wind have a significant energy inefficiency in them. The energy efficiency has to do with energy density. So the energy density per square meter for solar or for wind is very low. So the same with biomass. You need a lot of space and a lot of things to do. You expand a lot of work before you actually get something useful out. And that's where this low EROI comes from. And because it's low EROI, in fact, they're actually the most expensive truly the most expensive. And here I say the full cost of electricity, I don't say the leverage marginal cost of electricity. So when you're honest and you count the system cost, not some marginal cost matter which you're told in the press, then you will find out these are actually the most expensive on average. Not always a certain application that's different. Now, interesting is that in order to sustain our modern civilization, our modern society, there's some argument we need a minimum ERI of about six to 10 times uh, to sustain where we are. Otherwise, we would go back to, you know, 300 years ago where our ancestors, you know, spent 600 of their time of just collecting, you know, energy. So the, there is, in the academic press, um, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty about this, but there is a lot of word, and in my view, from what I'm understanding, it is the case that if you were to go 100% wind, solar, and biomass, you would literally, on average, be below the minimum required energy efficiency for modern civilization. And that has a lot of implications if you think about it. By the way, the Romans were the most advanced civilization prior to the Industrial Revolution, and they had about a two to one, roughly, just to put things into perspective. That's why also Roman cities couldn't grow above one million people, because they couldn't get enough energy into the city in the form of food and wood to keep themselves warm. So, so the city size back then was limited by energy supply. So, so cities only started to skyrocket after the Industrial Revolution, because they could actually get enough energy into the city. Yeah. Interesting, interesting fact. Now, of course, technology will improve all of these efficiencies over time. That's also clear. And, you know, we, you know, over time, we'll get better in all of these things. Now, there is another factor. So we talked about energy efficiency. We talked about money. And now we talk about the material input. So if you think about it, they, when you do a nuclear power plant, you need relatively little raw materials to do that. The same with coal and gas. Okay. Now, hydrogen, hydrogen, you need a lot. It's a lot of uh, raw materials you require for that. And wind, solar, and biomass, you need also a lot of raw materials per unit of output, per generated unit of electricity. That's the relevant part here, right? So, and then there's another, and uh, so by the way, there is, there's a study from the Department of Energy in the US, which just gives you an example here, which is materials and tons per terawatt. You see coal, gas, nuclear, you see hydro, solar, wind, um, there's other studies. There's a lot of uncertainty here. We're actually working on doing this a bit more in detail with some of professors worldwide. But just to give you a sense that generally, and this is all right now giving you a general sense, it definitely is true. The exact numbers are not certain, very clear. Okay. 
Now, there is another measure which is called the space requirement, which is also relevant. We talked about energy efficiency. We talked about um, the money. We talked about the material input. Now we talk about the space requirement, the land requirement. And of course, obviously, you understand that wind, solar, biomass have a significant larger land footprint per unit of output compared to nuclear or, um, or um, coal. Now, what's interesting is that if you do deploy carbon capture utilization and storage, CCUS, in order to, to, to limit the CO2 emissions from thermal applications, you can, of course, do that. It just requires energy. Remember, energy is at the center of everything. So you would reduce your efficiency, your, your net energy efficiency, by about 20 30%, because part of the energy you, you use to capture now and do something with that, with that uh, CO2. Now, interesting as well is, if you now produce hydrogen in order to store electricity, think about it. When would you use hydrogen how would you produce hydrogen? Well, you would only produce hydrogen from excess unutilized renewables. You would never ever use your coal, gas, or nuclear or hydropower to produce hydrogen because you can use electricity right away the way you need it on demand, right? And um, and um, so you would only use that that excess unutilized renewable. And even with wind or solar power, you would first charge your Tesla directly before you disperse, make hydrogen because it's much more efficient to use the energy directly. Interesting is also that as you produce hydrogen for the purpose of storage, you literally lose 60 to 80% of the input energy. So when you make hydrogen, you produce hydrogen, you store it, you transport it, and you repower hydrogen, that whole chain costs you 60 to 80% of the input energy. And now you can see something, we're getting dangerously close to the Romans 2,000 years ago. Again, it's illustrated, but you get my point. In fact, doing hydrogen will, will make it least efficient way of producing energy, make it even less efficient. And this is now called the CCUS. So in a way, we're told to actually move from thermal, from this efficiency to this efficiency. And that is a big problem. And that problem you started to see in the past two years, um, um, what happened there. Um, so I will skip this, if you don't mind. Now. To, to illustrate this whole issue of, in this case, solar and a bit more um, a bit more illustrated for you, a bit, bit more visually for you. So here is here's a day in California, right? So you have little demand in the night. You have a lot of demand during the day. And then the afternoon, you have evening, you have a lot of demand. And this is your solar power on a perfect sunny day in California. So it seems all you have to do is somehow that solar during the day, you somehow have to store for the night and then you're fine. So that's the logic how you're told, right? So, well, the fact is that, um, so it seems to be like a two times roughly, you know, two times of over capacity over the demand would be enough. Well, the fact is that California is be the most efficient place in the world. And you actually, the, the capacity factor, the natural capacity is only 25%. Remember, I mentioned that. So actually, because of the mornings and the evenings and because of some rainy days, the best areas in the world reach 25, maybe 28% of natural capacity factor. Let's say 25%. So in fact, now suddenly you have to four times already, not two times, but four times for California. Well, that is now if you could somehow efficiently get that over here from there. But if you go via hydrogen, which is the current supposed solution, you would have to increase that by three to five times again. Remember the 60 to 80% of efficiency in producing hydrogen. So suddenly you have a 12 to 20 times overbuilt capacity in order to get over the winter in California or anywhere else. 
if you were to use California. Now, if you use Germany, please increase it by two to three times. So you start to see how unrealistic the wind, solar plus hydrogen future is becoming, just purely based on physics and, and, and energy economics. Nothing to do with what your views on climate change. Yeah. Um, okay. Cost of electricity. So we talked a little bit of the cost. I'll keep this short and I'll skip a couple of slides. But um, basically, the OECD in 2019 already made a interesting statement. They said that then variable renewables, variables, actually wind and solar is a variable renewable, variable because it cannot predict it, increase the cost of the total system. So first of all, the first sentence, the OECD says, logically, wind and solar increase the cost of the total system. So they don't even question that. The OECD already says right there, it's more expensive. So when they do that, they impose such costs through the increased balancing costs, more costly transportation distribution system, and need for residual backup or storage systems. So the OECD does not question that it's more expensive. They explain why it is more expensive. And they also say, from an economic point of view, wind and solar should be taxed for the surplus cost in order to achieve the optimal deployment. And they go on and say, basically, the more VRE is variable renewable energy, so wind and solar, the more you have in the system, the higher the cost of your electricity. So when you read in the press that wind and solar is the cheapest way of, of, of producing electricity, that's not true. It has the, it has the cheapest marginal cost because every additional ton, or sorry, every additional hour of solar or wind, you know, gives you free electricity, um, and the, the 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 investment cost is only once. The operational cost is very low, so it appears to have a very low cost at that basis. But that never accounts for. So those those statements in the press never account for the backup system required, the storage system required, and the the balancing cost and the network integration cost. Because how do you deal with this variable power in your system? Um, that requires a lot of adjustment, not only to transmission lines. There's a lot of things that need to happen on the balancing side and the distribution side. And that cost is so expensive. It becomes more expensive the more you have. So that's just about the, the issue of cost. So when the IEA here in September, just in September 2022, the IEA, the National Energy Agency, they're putting out this, this is still called levelized cost of electricity for utility-skill solar and onshore wind in selected countries. So this, by the way, was written for Indonesia, the, the, the net zero roadmap for Indonesia. So they tell us that, well, overall coal cost is here at six, six cents per kilowatt hour, uh, or roughly $60 per, per megawatt hours. Gas is a bit more expensive. And then they say, well, in India, wind and solar is already cheaper. South Africa, it's cheaper. Brazil, it's cheaper. Okay, Indonesia, it's not so cheap because they don't have any wind, by the way, or hardly any wind. And actually, even solar, they don't have much because of the monsoon. The, the equator region tends to have very little solar, um, or not little, but less than expected because a lot of rain, a lot of clouds. I lived in Asia before, so I can tell you all about it. And anyone living in Africa knows as well what it looks like. So the IA gives this picture about the lowest cost of electricity. Well, but they're forgetting that um, uh, integration and backup cost which is the most important, which the OECD already a few years earlier mentioned on. And if you read a different report from the IEA from December 2020, they actually do say the system value of variable renewables such as wind and solar decreases as their share in the power supply increases. So in other words, they are admitting the more wind and solar in the system, the higher the cost. But they continue to use a cost measure, which is LCOE, 
which is something you cannot use LCOE level as electricity to compare dispatchable with renewable. It's a very technical point, but a very important point. Because when you see these, these news reports, this is BBC, switching to renewables could save trillions, could save trillions. Or when you see in Germany, after they just turned off nuclear a couple of weeks ago, the, the vice president of the Bundestag, the German parliament said, the price of electricity will of course become cheaper because she is informed that wind and solar is the cheapest way of producing electricity. Well, it's wrong. Okay, they're obviously mistaken. They are told things, they're given a partial cost measure, not a full cost measure, and they don't understand the full cost of integrating wind and solar in the system. So I can tell you, I, I, I save you the, the detail here, what the LCOE is, you know, basically there, there's the cost of building, cost of fuel, and cost of operation. That is this measure that all these statements are made on, and it does not include transmission, storage, backup, condition, balancing, doesn't cost, include any environmental cost, recycling cost, or the cost of the land, right? the, the, the land you use. It does not include the, the material input, uh, you know, the inefficiency of material input. The lifetime is not included, or it's partially included, not, not, really, not really included. And the, the net energy efficiency is not considered in this measure, LCOE. That is why we are defining a full cost electricity, FCOE, which gives a more bigger picture, better picture, but the actual number, the real number, we don't have yet. That's a lot of work to be done. But that's how sad it is in the world. We actually don't even know how expensive really wind and solar is. Nobody yet has done this calculation properly you know, for certain countries. So, so, so Germany or the US or any country in the world has not really measured this. Yeah. Let me give you Vietnam as an example. So Vietnam, I, I, I traveled there quite a lot, luckily, and it's a beautiful country. And Vietnam is, is a large, growing country. So Vietnam has 50 gigawatt of installed capacity in 2018 has 76 gigawatt today. Of that, solar and wind is already 20 gigawatt. Now, Vietnam is a growing country. So Vietnam's um, uh, peak power is only 45 gigawatt. So they have this reserve margin, right, of the 45 gigawatt peak power. They have enough reserve margin from coal and gas and hydro to give them secure electricity, electricity supply. And they're still building the, high, the, the, the solar on top. Now, the plan for Vietnam is to increase coal. They're going to invest in more coal. That's a good thing in this case. They're going to invest in more gas, and they're going to invest a little bit more in hydro. But there's only so many rivers you can you can you know harvest from. There's not enough rivers to harvest hydro from. So they're going to continue increasing. And then suddenly in 2035, you start to see that coal starts to come off, gas continues increasing, hydro is stable, and then solar goes solar and wind, you know, go through the roof. So by 2050, Vietnam developing nation, a fraction of the power consumption that we have, basically assumes that by 2050, they would have a little bit more installed dispatchable capacity than they have today. And they expect that the power demand is going to be increased five times in that time. And now you can see in 2030, that line is matching suddenly the dispatchable capacity. So you know that by 2030, Vietnam will have the issues that Germany has today. Right, because when dispatchable power reaches peak power demand, then you're just before um, blackouts. So South Africa is a beautiful example. South Africa has a reduced coal-fired capacity because of, of, of inefficiency, corruption, and, and not enough investment. And the peak power is above the current dispatchable capacity. And that's why they have blackouts in Joburg 16 hours a day and Cape Town 8 hours a day blackouts every single day. I was just there a couple of weeks ago. 
So what next? Okay, now we've heard this gloom and doom, and what are we going to do? What's happening next? So first of all, Economist, I love the Economist. Um, you know, made already appointment in twenty one already, right before the the war in the Ukraine. They already said, well, the the green revolution risks running short of minerals, money, and places to build. Remember, I told you we talked about minerals, we talked about money, we talked places to build. They just forgot energy. It's going to run out of energy, right? So so now we have the three, the four things. That is energy, minerals, money, and places. Right, then we're going to run out of that. And the reason has to do with all these things you can later read uh, in the download um, at Tumblr that's available to you, what the reasons are, capacity factors, intermittencies, uh, supply locations, material inefficiencies, all those things, right? But I don't want to bore you with that. But basically, the, the economists already captured this, right, two years ago, okay? They just forgot the energy, okay? Which is the most important, actually. Now, the externalities of energy systems. So if you think about the energy system, the industry, the energy industry, which I'm working in, right, has the goal to provide access to reliable, sustainable, affordable electricity and energy to for you, the consumer. And that requires production and mining, that requires processing, transportation, manufacturing, operations, and recycling, right? That's all part of the energy supply chain, if you think about it. You probably have not thought about it in the past, but now you may think about it a little bit better. Now, all of these things has externalities, human and environmental externalities. And these externalities are emissions. Emissions is something not we don't want, right? So that's an externality. It's something in order for us you know, to have the power energy we need, we will you know, harm the, the environment in form of emissions, right? And um, secondly, there is other environmental issues that we have with it. And then there is certain human implications that we have with our energy systems. And emissions, everybody talks about um, um, greenhouse gases. Yes, they are emissions. And yes, CO2 does contribute to global warming. So does methane and other things. But there's other emissions. There's SOx and NOx and mercury and chlorine and particulate matter, all those things, right? And by the way, all along the entire value chain, right? There, there's, there's SOx and NOx here and here and here and here and here, right? And then there's other environmental issues. This is the energy input, right? It's the energy efficiency. Because the more efficient we are in producing energy, the least, the less environmental impact we have. The more material efficient we are, the raw material impact is, is quite significant. It's not an emission. There's a non-emission environmental impact, right? And then there is space requirement, animal implants, waste, all those other non-emission environmental impacts that our energy system has. And then, of course, we have the human impact. There's health and safety, right? There's energy poverty, right? Because, I mean, if we don't have energy, we are, we are poor, energy poor. And if you're energy poor, you know, it's financially, financial poverty, industrial development. So there's all these human development and externalities that energy access has. Now, what's interesting is that in the past years, it seems that energy policy focuses only on counting during operations. And what are they counting? They're counting CO2, right? So our energy policy worldwide, including most of the bank's policies, large company policies, we are counting CO2. That's it, basically. And the taxation is only based on operation. CO2 during the emission, during the combustion of coal or gas or whatever, or my EV, electric vehicle, right? Or my, or my, my, my gas-fired, diesel-fired car. We are counting CO2 emissions only during operations, and we are optimizing based on that only. And if we do that, we are causing distortions and undesired consequences because if you are focusing on one element of all the distortions and not the others, the world will start to optimize that one portion. 
at any cost, as long as it's still profitable. So that's why I'm vehemently against a carbon taxation because it's anti-environment. It's anti-human, not because I don't care about the environment, but because I have a wider view and the world is a little bit bigger than just CO2 emissions. And by doing that, we are causing um, a distortion. Just one example, just by not counting methane, right? Currently, the world is switching from coal to LNG because LNG emits less CO2 during combustion, which is true, about half. But if you were to include the methane emissions during the entire chain, suddenly LNG is actually worse than coal for the climate. So think about if, if we were to just include methane of all these bubbles, suddenly our policy would not be LNG, yes, coal, no, but it would be coal, yes, LNG, no. I mean, it's a huge, that, that's how, how big these things can be, right? And of course, I'm not against gas at all. We need all the gas we can get, don't get me wrong. I'm just telling you, giving you an example of what a CO2 taxation does to the environment, to the climate, and to humans. Okay, so now we have this triangle of, of energy policy, security of supply, affordability of supply, environmental protection. V examining wind and solar, we know that they're not secure. We know that they're not affordable. We know that they are maybe help the climate. They probably help pollution, probably. They definitely don't help plants and animals, definitely not land and space, definitely not material effective, definitely not energy effective. So this is just examining wind and solar honestly, truly from that perspective, okay? Now, the lucky thing is that I am independent. So I'm not employed, so I can say what I want to say. So I can be honest to myself and to others it might be unpopular. That's why the book is called Unpopular Truth. Yeah, but that is the reality. Yeah. So the problem, of course, is this money, right? Reliable energy needs money. But what we're currently doing this is just one of the UN Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance from the UN. It's 85 asset owners managing 11 trillion dollars of money. 11 trillion dollars of money, and they are, it's all about net zero, net zero CO2, right? And doing operation. So, so um, we have, these are just some banks, we cannot read it, but it doesn't matter, some banks, institutions, which have, which have committed to stop investing in coal, oil, and gas, okay? There's the G7 says, we will provide Vietnam $15 billion to cut coal use, right? So, so governments, South Africa, Vietnam, they're given money by the West, your taxpayers' money, to cut coal use, to save the climate, right? ING says... They already cut coal anyways, but they're going to say tough an oil and gas policy to include trade finance in midstream, right? Um, HSBC stops funding oil and gas field, right? So you have these big banks, big organizations do that. And what we need to do is we need to educate about the basics of energy. We need to educate politicians, executives, consultants, schools, universities, banks, and funds. Because if we don't, we are running out of money, which means we're running out of energy. And that will have severe consequences for the world, for you and me. Primarily for the poor, however, I will probably be fine. I'll probably manage. I'll have a diesel generator as backup. You know, I have three cars. You know, I manage all that. I have a diesel car, a gasoline car, and an EV. Yeah? So, so um, um, you know, the, the poor people or the poor, not even the poor, just the, the normal people who have a normal income will start to struggle. Yeah? So let's talk about some positive news at the end of this call. Tom, the call before we start our discussion. Look, this is the pollution in major cities over the past, just even four years. We have improved the pollution. This is, by the way, also pre-COVID. Even it's been going down. So the pollution actually have been going down for the past decades worldwide. We've made positive aspects. This is the mortality rate of children younger than five years due to malaria 20 years ago today. 
So the world has become safer for children in Africa. We've managed these positive things, right? This is the this is the crop yield for ye, for 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 wheat and for maize. So the crop yield for for wheat increased three times on average worldwide. So per hectare per acre, we have now three times the the wheat we had before. Why? Well, because number one, we have fertilizers. Uh, number two, uh, we have a bit more CO2 in the, in the atmosphere that helps also the, the growing. Um, and number three, we have slightly warmer temperatures. So, so generally, the green world likes that. Look, the maize, the maize um, um, yield. So these are positive things that all happen because of the access to electricity and, and energy we have. And, and, and these are positive news. This is the greening from those from NASA. This is how green the world has become. The world is greener today than it was 40 years ago. The world is greener today than it was 40 years ago. Despite the Amazon, despite this desertification, all those things, the world is greener today. These are positive news. How often do you hear that in, in the news? And this is nada. It's not, not someone you know, funny saying this. Yeah? Um, so this is the, the life expectancy, right? I mean, it's since, since the Industrial Revolution, we used to live 30 years. Now we're living 80 years. I mean, aren't these things to celebrate? Do we really want to go back 100 years, biomass, green, Inefficient, energy inefficient. Yes, we have costs, right? Yes, we have costs. So um, what is the future of energy? Well, my argument is, because people ask, like, what do we do now? I mean, now, now you told me we're all doomed. No, we're not doomed. Quite contrary. What we, in my view, have to do is we have to invest in base research to sustainably wean off fossil fuels. Because I do believe long-term, 100, 200, 300 years, we will have to find alternatives to fossil fuels at least to a large extent. Fusion is part of that, right? So, so there is the nuclear force, right? There is the power of the planetary system. So there is so much power in our planetary system, which we can extract. Nothing to do with photovoltaic, by the way, but, but there is power out there, right? If we can somehow extract that, we don't know yet how, or even within our planet. So the, the, the energy within our planet is huge. If we find ways to efficiently get it out, beautiful. So we have to invest in these things to have a true sustainable solution. One thing I can promise you, Wind and solar is not that solution, purely energy economically, okay? Um, so, by the way, there may also be like a little Mars man come and give us a new stone. Who knows? Yeah, like something funny that they see. But one thing you have to also realize that all the energy we consume and produce ends up in what? Like what does happen with all our energy? Well, think about your phone. It's warm, right? Everything we do, the air conditioning, the factory, in the end, Almost all the energy we disperse to survive ends up in heat, warming our atmosphere. So part of the temperature increase we are seeing today, part of it, not all of it, but a part of it, comes from exactly that. 170 terawatt hours of energy going into the biosphere every year, right? So, and then second, we have to invest in our existing in energy infrastructure to reduce the environmental burden and to increase the energy efficiency. We don't have to divest. We have to invest. If you have a problem, you invest in a problem. You don't divest from a problem, right? To reduce the waste we generate, to reduce the poverty we have to, for, to, to actually sustain climatic changes. So we need to invest in coal, oil, and gas, and nuclear, and all those things to make it more efficient and cleaner. So that is my presentation, Tom. I think I gave you enough room to now discuss a little bit with me, but um, I hope this is helpful and uh, look forward to, to a good discussion. So my book, so sorry, if you don't mind, I have to say my book. So here's my book, Unpopular Truth. The website is up here. So all, all the graphs are on the website. So all the concepts, or not all, but some of the concepts I discussed here are on this website in the book. I recommend you to read it. I'm not going to make much money. I get 2 or $3 per, per book. 
Um, so it will not cover the cost I had, but I, I try to promote it because I think it is important for people to really start to understand these issues. You will find me on YouTube if you just put my name in. Um, if you have any questions on 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 um, climate change, I highly recommend the book Unsettled by P Professor Kuhnen from NYU, an amazing book, um, which um, very matter-of-factly written and, and gives you a lot of food for thought about climate change, which I'm not denying, quite the contrary. Okay, um, but what, what I am denying is the catastrophic um, uh, things that we hear in the press every day. And if you read some of my papers, you'll find them on SSRN. So, Tom, I go back to you. That was great stuff. Thank you for doing that. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, have you given similar type presentations ar around the world? And if so, what sort of reception are you getting? Yes. So, so I've I've been lucky enough to be invited at at, at energy conferences, commodity conferences. I've spoken to to ministries. I have spoken to to large conglomerates, large companies who want to understand, sort of a different view from what they read every day in the press. And 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 so far, the the reception was like, first of all, oh my God, I did not think about it this way, right? I mean, it's like, oh my God, you are right. I never thought about this way. And, um, and then of course, then the discussion starts. So usually when they understand the energy economic side, which I don't think can be in principle be, be disputed. I don't think any of what I said is, you know, wrong or, or, or is, is completely off. Maybe the numbers are a little bit here and there. I'm okay with that. But then right away, the next thing is, yeah, 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 but you're right. But the worst thing is, what if we don't do it? You know, we all do because of climate change. So as soon as people in in, in banks, in governments, uh, um, see my presentation, usually they forget it a couple of days later, but, but, but when they see the presentation, they're like, actually, you're right, energy-wise, we have a problem. But then they're right away caught back again. Yeah, but we're told we have no other choice. And of course you do. But but um, so so I think from an energy economic point of view, I don't think you can argue with many of these things. And I apologize to say that. I don't want to you know appear sort of high-nosed, but it's simple, simple mathematics, simple physics, simple energy economics, but people do not think about it that way. Yeah. Do you think that uh, we're just going to stumble along until we just continue having more and more blackouts and that's how people are going to figure out that we can't run a, our economies on wind and solar? Yeah, I, I get that question a lot about what happens now. I mean, look, I don't believe that I'm going to change or people like, I mean, more people like me who are speaking out about this um, um, are going to change current policies. What I do hope is to minimize the negative impact of those policies, but unfortunately, I do not see a way to avoid some of those blackouts in some regions. And when you look in New York uh, in the US, right, or even in, Cal in, in, in Florida, um, when you look in Germany, or when you look at some of the developing nations, Indonesia or Vietnam 10 years later, um, I do not see how we can avoid this, honestly. So unfortunately, I can only hope that when that happens, it will not be too painful, it will not cost too many lives. And I hope that then there will be an adjustment. You see, Tom, this is political. I'm not in politics, I'm luckily not, but of course I'm often misused for political reasons, but so I'm not right, I'm not left being, you know, I'm, I'm talking purely factual what is there. But in the end, this political agenda up there about energy, energy has always been used for political reasons, right? But what will happen, basically you will have, or we currently, you will have a, 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 yeah, a society will get more extreme on the green and on the not green, right, side. And, and that will actually cause cause more dispute and, and, and even social conflict. What we actually have to do is we have to get together, right? We have to take down our egos 
and look at, okay, what do we do, right? And and like I'm saying, we will have to wean off fossil fuels to a large extent. And, and, and let's see how we do that in a sustainable, logical way that is affordable for people without killing people in Africa because of electricity, right? And and um, and and yes, the climate is changing. And yes, there are things happening that we don't control. Some things we do control, right? And um, and and but it's not it's not all about CO two. CO two is just one of those little things that make a difference. And and when you look at at these at these climate catastrophes, they just don't make sense to me. I think you have had a few people already speak to you about that, so we don't need to speak too much about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious, out of the people that you've met, do you mostly think that they sincerely believe that CO2 causes bad weather and that's why we have to do it? Or do you think cynically people realize that it doesn't cause bad weather, but this is the way they can make more money somehow? I'm curious. Look, I mean, I, I, in my work, I travel every second week overseas. So I am in Asia and Africa and the Middle East, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, US, Latin America, and all those countries. So, so I'm, I'm speaking to a lot of people in the energy and business. And I'm speaking to you know people I used to work with at Boston Studying Group or at grad school or wherever. And, and look, we're all intelligent people, right? And, and what I know today, I didn't know 10 years ago. So I can't judge anyone for not knowing what I have learned on this subject. Okay, first of all. And what I do judge is people who make decisions without educating themselves with taxpayers' money, okay? So yes, people I meet, they're genuinely, many of them are genuinely concerned. They have been told too many times and every day in the press that something bad is happening, tipping points and all those things. And unfortunately, the, 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 the climate side of things is very, very complex. That is why I recommend this book, Unsettled, because I said this Kunin... He, he's, you know, he's been the IPCC, within the government. I mean, he's someone who's been in this his whole life. I am not an, you know, a climate scientist. I'm an energy economist. But there are people who really have come out in the public and given a, you know, level-headed review on this issue. And then that will also take away climate anxiety. By the way, I just read a recent study just said, came out, they studied 20,000 people. Well, I don't know, many, not 20,000, but many thousand people. And they said, the more you know, the less concerned you are. And they specifically used climate anxiety. So the more people know about climate change, so the more they learn, the more they educate themselves, the less concerned they become and the less anxiety they have. And that is exactly what I'm trying to do. Many of us is educating people, sharing some of the knowledge we have gained, but having everyone really draw their own conclusions. Because in the end, you know, it's not me to tell you what's right and wrong. I can only tell you what I've learned and from that, you start to make your own assumption. I can only tell you that studies show the more you know, the less concerned you are and the less anxiety. But look, I'm from Germany, and Germany has people gluing themselves to the street. You have, you, have, you have women castrating themselves because of climate change. You have women castrating themselves. These are people who are genuinely concerned. They are really afraid. Is there anything else I forgot to ask you or that you would uh, like to include before we wrap up? No, I think I've, I've made the key point. I think on the energy side, the key point for me is really the investment, right? So, so that is why I try to spend more of my time speaking to banks and funds, um, you know, to, for people to understand what they're doing because a bank deciding to take, to stop funding coal, oil, and gas and nuclear in many some cases as well, that's anti-human, right? And, and, and it's not anti-human in the sense of you're bad, it's just you have not thought through if everyone was to do that, what would happen to the world. So I think it's important for people to really take that forward and and uh, yeah and start looking at at what 
the implications of these policies are. And I hope that these discussions today, that's why I'm also doing this with you. I hope that with this, some people that listen to this, that, you know what Lars made me think, let me read up on this. Let me understand, is it true what he's saying? You know, all those things to actually start to, to, to maybe also make a difference in their own organization start to ask questions, right? I think that's important. Uh, thank you very much for doing this. And I will put in the show description, your Twitter feed, a link to your book and a link to your slides. So thank you very much for doing this.